Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and today we're going to take you on a journey through time and space back to the magical year of 1986. That's right. Uh, 30 years ago, I was 10 years old. And I've been writing about the year 1986 on site.com quite a bit lately. I am on post number four. I have talked about toys. I talked about movies. I talked about television. I talked about music. And I do believe that next week on Monday, I will be talking about the cartoons of 1986. Because I did not give them sufficient attention in the toy and television. Well, what happened is... Uh, you know, toys and cartoons were inextricably linked in the year of 1986 and in most of the 80s. So I mentioned a couple of cartoons in the toy post, but I, I didn't really get too in-depth. I, I had planned, once I decided I was going to do a television post, I was like, well, I'll talk th- about the cartoons there. But then when I looked at the television of 1986, there was so much to talk about uh, as far as sitcoms and whatnot that I really didn't have room for cartoons So uh, cartoons are going to get their own post, as well they should. Uh, You guys know me by now, and you know that cartoons are going to get their own post. So uh, this past Monday on NeedlessThingsSite.com, I posted about the music of 1986, and it ended up being the longest post of all of them, because I am definitely, I am not a musician, but I am a music guy. I've been into music my entire life. I've make a point of following bands and whatnot. I have music playing anytime that I can have music playing. It's just something that's a huge part of me. And 1986 was a big year for music, as you'll see if you go look at that post. What I took away from writing that post, though, was that I want to listen to more 80s music, and I want to listen to it now. Unfortunately, there is uh, not easily accessible uh, or, or... An album of 1986 stuff is not easily accessible. I used the Billboard Top 100 as my reference for writing that post. And there are Billboard CDs for pretty much every year going back to, I think, the 30s even. But they're not digitally distributed. So you have to go buy a physical copy, and I have not found one as of yet. But what I did get was Madonna's The Immaculate Collection. Yes, that's right. Uh, Madonna, which, what are you going to say? Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson. That's it, right? And she's the only one left now. Uh, those, to me, were the three biggest pop culture icons of the 80s, certainly the biggest music icons. Uh, so I picked up the Immaculate Collection, and it's freaking amazing. Of course it's amazing. So I was listening to it as I was mowing the lawn today, and it occurred to me, that the 80s were a much better time to be a teenager than the 90s, which is when I was a teenager. And you watch 80s movies, and they're all about sex, and teenagers having sex, and getting it on, and 
And, uh, you know, it's no wonder with, uh, you know, in the 80s, you, you've got Prince, you've got Madonna, uh, you've got all these smooth, cool, sexy people making music. And then in the 90s, when I was a teenager and I was trying, attempting, and failing to have sex, you had what? Nirvana and Vanilla Ice? We were sorely lacking in sexy time music in the 90s. And I, I blame uh, my poor performance at the time squarely on the music. I mean, what do you. You're going gonna to put on uh, some Nirvana? To get the lady all warm, that's that's going to make her want to take off her plaid flannel panties. A little Nirvana, that's some sexy stuff, or Vanilla Ice dancing around. Get the ladies going, right? No. No, it did not. At all. Uh, so the 80s were it. Not only for pop culture, not only for, for toys and cartoons and movies, but also for being a horny teenager. The 80s were the best time for that. Uh, is my assumption. I, I, I was not a horny teenager in the 80s, so I can only speculate, but it seems to me like that was a better time. Uh, and we will be talking today about the year 1986 specifically. And there was so much good stuff going on then. It was a banner year. I, I The only reason I started writing about 1986 was because it was 30 years ago, and I figured 10 years old was a pretty impactful time for me i absorbed a lot of stuff then but once i actually started looking back at, at all of those things at all the pop culture and whatnot i realized just how amazing a year that was and so today on the needless things podcast i had uh sean beth and our buddy chris de Petrillo from figures toy company who's been on a couple times before uh just talking toys but this time uh, just talking about pop culture, just here to have fun, because he had mentioned that he wanted to do that. Uh, not a business call, as it were. So the four of us sit around and we talk about 1986. We list some good, we list some bad, and I think you guys are going to dig it and have a good time. So we're going to jump right into it as soon as I get this out of the way. Oh, you know what's coming, don't you? Patreon.com slash Phantom Troublemaker is where you can go to support the Needless Things podcast, NeedlessThingsSite.com, and all of the other interesting stuff that I get up to as Phantom Troublemaker. Uh, go there. There are rewards. You get access to my Patreon-exclusive posts, which thus far have included some movie reviews and a patron cast, which is an audio podcast that is exclusive to people that are contributing $5 or more to my Patreon uh, and, and helping me out. And so far, everybody that is contributing has said it's worthwhile. Uh, if you contribute $30, and look, I know this sounds crazy pants, but if you contribute $30 or more, you will be the recipient once a month of the Needless Things Mystery Box, which will be packed full of goodies uh, I guarantee the uh, $30 plus dollar value, and you'll have fun just opening the thing up and seeing what the heck's in there. But more importantly, you will be supporting me and everything that I do as Phantom Troublemaker and with Needless Things. So everybody that is supporting me, thank you very much. Uh, anybody that wants to spread the word about patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker, please do so. Uh, if, you, if you can't afford it, and believe me, I understand if you can't. I can't afford it. I know lots of Patreon stuff that I would love to contribute to that I, I just can't. 
Because I'm putting my money into needless things, and you should be too. So now, before we start talking about 1986, here's a little bit of music, and then a lot of 1986. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get this thing going if you guys are prepared to talk about the year that was 1986. Uh, first, I want to introduce everybody on the show. Uh, Sean, welcome back. I think it's been a little while, actually. Uh, yeah, I think it had. Well, yes. It's been more than a couple of weeks. It's been more than a couple of weeks, and uh, part of that is because uh, you prompted a spinoff show, which has released one whole episode. <laughs> You've been putting your time into that one episode. I, I, I took some time <laughs> off to record that one episode. <laughs> Um, <laughs> also joining us, also returning, who has not been absent for as long. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just on two weeks ago, talking about X-Men, uh, Miss Beth, welcome back. Hey, hey. Your review uh, went up today on NeedlessThingsSite.com, so everybody should go check that out, because ours was a pre-movie episode where we just talked about the history of the X-Men franchise. So if you guys want to know what Beth actually thought about the newest movie, go to NeedlessThingsSite.com. And if you want to know what I thought... Go to patreon.com slash phantom troublemaker. And finally, uh, the last voice on the show, somebody who hasn't been on in quite some time and who hasn't been on to just talk pop culture before. Welcome back, Mr. Chris DePetrillo. How are you doing, sir? Doing very good. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back and happy to uh, do some non-business chatting with you all tonight. Get down to some uh, pop culture goodness. Yeah, I, I have been wanting to have you on just for... You know, regular talk, and it, it occurred to me, I was like, because for the last month I've been writing about 1986 on the site, and I just really, even though I've I've kind of immersed myself in it a lot, there's so much to talk about, and the best way to do that is just having conversations with people. And I was like, oh, I have a feeling Chris is going to be a guy to have on that episode. So I shot you a message, and uh, you, you got on it, man, and I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You definitely thought right, and it's kind of... Uh coincidental because i'm not sure if you have the uh 2b tv app it's another one of the free streaming apps kind of like crackle uh i actually have been streaming alf episodes oh, on that beautiful. recently so i've kind of been reliving some of the stuff you've been talking about before we even got this conversation off the ground it i mean it was a you know not only is that era near and dear to my heart i mean the 80s is when i was growing up and when i was soaking up everything that made me who i am now but 1986 in particular is just a, a banner year, and what we've done is I asked everyone to bring to the table tonight a, a few of their favorite things from 1986, and uh, if we have time at the end, we're going to run through some of our least favorite things from 1986, but I definitely always like focusing on the positive, so what we're going to do now is kick things off. We're just going to do go around and... Uh, drop an item, and then have a little bit of discussion about it. And I'm going to start it off because this is one of my obsessions happened to come out this year. Everybody listening to this knows that this is huge to me, and that's the Inhumanoids. Uh, the Inhumanoids, if you don't know, were a toy line and a cartoon because everything in 1986 was a toy line and a cartoon. 
and it was produced by Hasbro. And the cartoon was produced by Sunbow, who were also the ones that did the G.I. Joe cartoon. And I just, I adore this line. It only lasted a year, but it produced some of the best toys of the 80s. These three gigantic monsters, uh, mid-sized monsters, and some really odd choices for human figures. Because they're technically three and three-quarter inch scale, just like G.I. Joe. But they come in these really big suits, uh, multi-purpose armor suits. But... It's just an eye-catching toy line. If you look it up online, you'll sit there. And uh, if you're a toy fan, you're going to go through the pictures and, and look everything up because each figure is amazing, and it's monster stuff. And, and what kid or grown-up, for that matter, doesn't like monster stuff? Do you guys remember the Inhumanoids? Do you have any fondness for them at all? I remember them quite a bit. I uh, wasn't collecting them, um, but I do. And I feel like that were the monsters themselves, those are huge. Um, you know, it's the actual, I feel like the, the regular people characters were, were, like you said, they were kind of a normal size, but the, but the monsters and everything else. And so I feel like maybe they might have been outside of, um, like whatever my parents' acceptable price range was. Yeah, uh, they were, they were pricey. It was something that I wasn't really allowed to collect, not just for the price, but for the, I guess, grotesqueness. But yeah, the large monsters were around 13 to 15 inches. Uh, the smaller monsters were around six or seven and the humans were also around six or seven because they were in those big suits. But yeah, it was, it was a bit of a pricey line. It, one of the, one of the figures probably cost twice as much as GI Joe. So, you know, that was one of the challenges the line faced. Yeah. And, and as we'll get into, uh, later when I get into, to my hits from 1986, I was just getting into, um, BMX and 20 inch bicycles. And so, it would literally come down to my parents would make me choose between getting toys or getting parts for my bike. Oh, so, you were doing things outdoors. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a place I often ventured. <laughs> Anybody else got any Inhumanoids uh, things to share? I actually have, I think I still have in my parents' house somewhere, the uh, Tendril Monster. Yes. Uh, that was definitely the one that I remember the most um, as a little kid. It was just, you know, I, I, I'm obsessed with the Incredible Hulk. I think I've mentioned that before. So to a six-year-old, it was like, hey, big green monster? Okay, that's that's the one that I want the most. <laughs> and I remember not so much collecting the Inhumanoids line beyond that and maybe one or two other characters, but I would mix him up with my Masters of the Universe. So it was just another oh, yeah, monster yeah. foe for He-Man to conquer. I was I was not one to omit other toy lines from interacting with each other. You know, He-Man won a wrestling belt at one point, and I think G.I. Joe made a run in. So I used to kind of mix and match with everybody, kind of Toy Story style. But I definitely had the tendril. That's the one that stands out the most to me. Yeah, and you're right. The, that was one thing that was pretty awesome about the line is the monsters are going to go with anything. They're going to go with He-Man, with G.I. Joe, even Transformers or something. Because, you know, size-wise, it's fine. But I, I was a picky kid. If my humans didn't look the same, like, G.I. Joe was not hanging out with He-Man. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was very, uh, very picky about that kind of thing. But yeah, monster-wise, a fantastic line to mix and match with other stuff. Beth, I'm going to assume you weren't a huge fan of the Inhumanoids back in the day. What a correct assumption you just made. Um, <laughs> I, being a little bit older and a girl, was 12 in 1986, so I was worried uh, at that point more about becoming a girl than I was about playing with toys. You wanted to hook up with some BMX guy. Uh, I was 12, <laughs> so I didn't know what hooking up meant. <laughs> 
You want to know how old with the BMX? Days guy. before the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's so, be clear. BMX guys, we were not ever fighting off the ladies. Oh, ever. come on now. You didn't have the little kickstands on your back wheels with a lady hanging under your waist riding the, uh, the uh, what, what were they called? Help me out, Sean. The pegs. Is that it? That's yeah, that's the, the fancy name for those little things. Yes, pegs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they weren't there. They weren't there for the ladies. Guy before or after the movie Rad was released? Because that's another the, thing from 1984. We're gonna get to that. Spoilers. Let's take that on my list as well. Let's is take... it? Yes. Oh my gosh. Not in a good way, Sean. Not in a good way. This this is look, like... it's still. <laughs> it's, it's up there with solar babies for me, if that tells you anything. Well, let's let's take that as a segue. Sean, what is your first pick? Uh, so my first pick, 1986 was a huge, huge year for me. We we moved from the city to the suburbs. Um, I had gotten – I had literally before we moved, I had just gotten my first 20-inch bike. And so I was like 10 or 11 years old. I had been bugging my parents forever easily half of my life at that point. <laughs> I want a bicycle. I want a bicycle and a bicycle. We moved to the suburbs. BMX freestyle had just become a thing. Like it was brand new. And when we moved out to the suburbs, a bunch of kids were riding and I saw that and I would, I would try to do it on the bike that I had that my parents bought me from a department store. That bike just could not handle the abuse. It was not designed for that. And after spending tons of money on replacement parts, because I was literally breaking a different part every day, my parents finally got me a Dino Detour, just one of the most amazing BMX bikes, one of the most amazing moments. 1986 was a great year. And what I would do is my neighbor and I, we would come home from school every day, watch either the opening, closing, or both, to the movie Rad, because back then you all you had about BMX was the movie Rad, and uh, if you had subscriptions to BMX magazines, uh, videotapes weren't huge yet. Obviously, no YouTube, no internet, and so the only way to see our favorite riders ride ever was to watch the movie Rad. And so we would watch the movie, and then we would go out into the backyard, and this would be and all summer we'd go out into the backyard and try to build our own hell track. Um, which is the big race, the penultimate race at the end of the movie Rad. Um, and we would just ride around and we would jump stuff. And I would secretly plan how I was going to sneak my bike into school for a school dance so that when Send Me an Angel by Real Life came on, I could just come bursting through the gymnasium doors and bicycle boogie just like Crew Jones did. And that would make me the most popular kid in school. And <laughs> I bet it would have worked out. And yeah, suffice to say that that never happened. Um, and instead, I would just continue to live vicariously through uh, through Rad. And to this day, um, you know, I was like I said, I was I was eleven in 1986 to this day rad is still something i watch regularly i still ride bmx occasionally um i have a bike that i keep next to my desk in my office uh at work and every now and then i'll just hop out and go ride around downtown athens or go to a skate park um i have a lot of friends who's the same experience this movie was near and dear to their heart we will all lose our collective minds uh when send me an angel comes on uh we've had viewing parties 
uh, Athens, up in Athens, Georgia, they have the big Twilight Criterion bike race every year, which is a, a road race, and it also involves a big BMX contest. And so all of the old school guys will get together, and they've had at like little art house movie theaters up there, they've shown Rad on the big screen for just a bunch of drunken. 40 year olds to get together and watch and yeah it's it's amazing it's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination but if you were really into bmx back then it was an amazing movie for for you like because again we didn't have the x games we didn't have the internet we didn't have videos didn't really get um really all that big i i think it was probably two or three years before uh, the bike companies and the professional riders started releasing uh, VHS tapes that you could get, so that you could actually see the tricks in the magazine being performed in real life. So, well, yeah. just to verify how big BMX was, uh, it, it's well established that I was not an outdoor kid, <laughs> and I wanted a BMX bike. I had no business wanting a BMX bike, and my parents were smart enough to rather than spending any kind of money on a BMX bike, buy me a red huffy dirt bike uh, and tell me that that was a BMX bike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even even indoor, you know, playing with my G.I. Joe USS flag playset or, or whatever, wanted that BMX bike. Like, that's how big it was. And I don't remember why it was big, because I, I have never seen Rad. Uh, I don't want to, but I guess I will at some point. Uh, when you twist my arm enough. <laughs> Look, I sat through things. Dude, that was a privilege. <laughs> Beth, Beth can verify so I've been that. I've privileged many times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't remember why it was big, but I, I do definitely remember that it was big and I wanted to be part of it. Uh, anybody else have any BMX memories? <laughs> no, oh, I don't think the movie. Oh, wait, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so you got, but you guys have seen Chris and Beth. You guys have seen Rad. I actually oh, own Rad. Oh, yeah. oh wow! Okay, so let's VHS? very briefly let's talk about Rad for a couple of minutes because I don't know anything. Lay it down. It is. Uh, it is definitely a product of its time, uh, but it's you know I'm I'm a sucker for the um, I don't want to say thematic, but. Uh, I can't think of the, the best word to describe it, but I, I put it in the same category with uh, Thrashin', which was the skateboard movie. Yeah. Um, years later in the early 90s, one of my all-time favorites is Airborne, which was the rollerblade movie. So it was just kind of one of those uh, extreme sports-style things. Like they, they all kind of have the same similar plot, you know, the the misfit or the outcast kind of kid, you know, rebelling against the man and the jocks or the cool kids. Well, and, Karate Kid, you know. probably a similar yeah, kind of thing, yeah, right? It's, well, it's, yeah. it's Karate Kid. Uh, it, it's Rocky for a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old. Um, and it actually has Adrian in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, um, and actually that's why it has never been released on DVD officially is um, – why can't I remember her name right now? Uh, that's Talia Shire. Yeah, Talia Shire. She actually owns the rights to the movie Rad. Uh-huh. And um, my copy is an unofficial one. We'll yeah. say that. Yeah, mine, an, mine as well. An import. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Rad was never uh, officially released on DVD. It was only ever released on VHS. Um, and yeah, Talia Shire owns the rights to it. And I don't know why she won't let them release it to to DVD. But yeah, that's what the holdup is in getting it released. Do you really not know why? 
Come on, man. I feel like that was a high point in her career. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, Beth, what is your hot property from 1986? Uh, as a, also an indoor child and indoor adult, I'm going to go with video games and go with Legend of Zelda. Oh, nice. Many, that was the... many current so... professional wrestlers uh, love Legend of Zelda. <laughs> I'm not up on my professional wrestling, but maybe I need to be. It makes me sad. I I know. We'll <laughs> talk. We'll talk later. <laughs> um, that was when I really started caring about video games, not just playing, you know, asteroids or or shooting aliens out of the sky or centipede or anything like that. That was when I really cared about a story. And it made me a loyal Nintendo follower for a very, very long time until they stopped making good consoles. <laughs> hey, they, they still run the market on the handheld, but not not a good console anymore. Where did, where did they lose you, GameCube? Yeah, GameCube. After GameCube, I couldn't go with Wii. I switched over to PlayStation, and then after PlayStation, switched over to Xbox, and I'm not going back. I miss I miss a new Zelda game sometimes, but yeah, I'm not going back. It's just too little kitty. Well, I, I hate to get too far afield from 1986, but the Wii U, pretty awesome. We'll talk later. You have so tell us different. about tell us about Zelda. It was the first game where I really felt like I was on a quest, and I was part of the story rather than just shoot this or there's pixels coming at you. It was, it was the first time I went on a quest and it is certainly not the last time I have gone on a quest because I've been into RPGs ever since. And I can probably trace that back to the legend of Zelda getting me into the idea of, Oh, I've got to go find a sword and I got to rescue this bitch. And I've got all these things I have to do. (laughs) There's a lot of pressure for a 12 year old, you like having but goals. I think it was the actual instructions for the game, rescue this bitch. I think that was in the manual. <laughs> <laughs> that was Nintendo Power Magazine. It was a headline, uh, how to rescue this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> she was tough to get to and always has been. Well, and Zelda was, you know, the, the Nintendo had only come out the prior year. 1985 is when the NES hit, I think, towards the end of the year. And... You know, let alone how good Zelda was for the time, but this whole new wave of video games that, you know, a bunch of kids who'd only ever seen an Atari 600 or an Intellivision, like the Nintendo was a revolution. It was, it was insane the complexity of these games now, and Zelda was a step beyond because up to that point it had been Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt and, you know, whatever else. But Zelda was this whole new type of video game that was nothing like anything we'd ever seen before. And it was back in the days before you had uh, Prima Guides or now IGN or whatever gaming forum site you used. Right, right. You had to figure out all these puzzles on your own. There was no one to go to for help. You were, Yeah, you were on your own, and it was the first game to have a battery in it so you could actually save your game. Because you had to. Right. And that was what was great about it was that it was it was actually something that you couldn't just sit down and play for a minute or you couldn't play through it in one day. You really had to put some time into it. 
which made it feel like you were getting your money's worth because at the time, you know, video game prices have not changed that much. You were paying 40 or 50 bucks for a Nintendo cartridge back in the day and to have a game like Zelda that really did demand that much of your time, you felt like you were getting your money's worth. I don't know how much games cost back then. My parents didn't tell me these things, but, <laughs> but I know I got my money's worth out of it. My my parents were super against video games at that point, uh, and I I was buying. I bought my NES myself. I had to buy games myself. It well, was because so, clearly you're already spending way too much time indoors. Yeah, right. Exactly. They were like, seriously. I, well, They're, you know what? If they'd bought me that red BMX bike that I'd wanted, maybe right. I would have gone outside. Right. All they would have had to have done no, you is. Bayo uh, and no, I, I wouldn't have. It would, it would have been a waste of money, and it would have sat in the basement. <laughs> uh, Sean and Chris, do you guys uh, have any Zelda memories? Uh, I had Zelda um, back when Nintendo first came out. Uh, I was very fortunate to get a lot of the games as they came out, um, either for my birthday or Christmas or whatever, so whatever the hot titles were, and Zelda was one of them. I've never been a big RPG guy, so I played Zelda more in my youth than I did when I got older and could probably appreciate it more. And I've actually never really looked back on it. Um, I've kind of turned more into a fighting game, you know, Street Fighter Mortal Kombat or a first-person shooter, you know, COD kind of guy. So I've never really looked back on doing anything RPG style. Uh, I remember loving it when I was a kid, even though I didn't really grasp the whole concept as a, you know, six, seven-year-old, you know, just a guy with a sword walking around a burning bush. Um, <laughs> but I, I I had it, I played it, I enjoyed it for what it was, but I, I never latched onto it like the way Beth said she did. Yeah. What about you, Sean? Well, Sean, you you used to be a video, like, into video games and stuff until your your career spoiled it. Yeah, I'm in the very early days, and I'm talking, like, early, early, like, I probably... Around that time, the only video games that I was playing with any regularity would have been Wolfenstein, uh, Castle Wolfenstein, and Carmen Sandiego on the Apple IIe. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I went super nerdy. You just dropped a nerd bomb. <laughs> well done, sir. Yeah, I went um, super... And you think it's the BMX thing that didn't get you laid, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I figured that the BMX thing might be a step up. <laughs> right, right. That was going to increase your value. That was going to put me a little bit closer to the athletes who got laid. <laughs> but when your computer's on the handlebars, it's not going to work that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what do you got? What's your number one 1986 item? All right, this one is more for the movie, but I'm going to mention the soundtrack as well, so I don't mean to cheat, but they do go hand in hand. Oh, no, but no go if- for it. If anyone remembers uh, this movie, it is an all-time favorite. The soundtrack is probably one of the best rock soundtracks out there. I'm talking about the movie The Wraith, starring Charlie Sheen, uh, with the soundtrack that featured Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, just a whole plethora of 80s rock gods uh, on one album. Uh, Hopefully you guys have seen the movie or know of the movie, so we can discuss it. If not, I can go into further detail with it. I've I have seen it, but it has been years. I, I think it's probably another one of those flicks that I'm kind of waiting for the Shout Factory release. Um, uh, I know Lionsgate put it out on Blu-ray a few years ago with the whole remastered version. They have the rights, and it's actually on cable right now. Uh, it popped up on Showtime the other night, so it's on the Showtime movie channel block of channels right now. Well, and that's it's amazing what a soundtrack can do for a movie because. Uh, like Hellraiser 3, 
Not a great movie. Not a great Hellraiser movie. But I bought the soundtrack at the time, and it's got Motorhead, Material Issue, and like all of these extremely 90s bands. But because that soundtrack I enjoyed so much at the time, it kind of enhances the movie for me. Is the Wraith, oh, very much so. is the Wraith the same way, or is it like still a pretty decent movie that happens to have an awesome soundtrack? I mean, it's still a decent movie. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for, you know, the, the 80s and the 90s stuff. So, you know, I know we talk about nostalgia a lot. And this movie is just something that has a lot of sentimental value because it's something that I remember, you know, watching with my older cousins. And I was the cool little kid that got to see this movie about this car. Um, just a refresher for everybody or for anyone who's listening who's never seen it. The premise of the movie is that there is a gang of car thieves, car street racer car thieves that have killed a kid and are covering it up and charlie sheen rolls into town he's this mysterious new guy you know what's his whole role in this and he winds up falling for the dead kid's girlfriend who's being stalked by the leader of the gang and on the side there's this mysterious black car that shows up and challenges these guys to individual races and kills them by driving through them or driving through their cars or through their warehouse just picking the gang members off one by one and there's a supernatural element to it. You never see the driver's face. He's always blocked by a, a dark helmet, um, has like this super powerful shotgun that he wields at one point, blowing up the garage. And, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the movie, but it's just it's the essential 80s blend of the action and the sci fi and the thriller kind of like all rolled into one. Um, not even so much the songs that made it into the movie, because I mean, like I said, Motley Crue was in there. Uh, they played addicted to love in it, uh, secret loser by Ozzy. So all these like really great songs at one point, the album was going, this is in the early two thousands when everything was out of print. Napster was just kind of starting to take over. Yeah. yeah. I saw that album go for about $500 on eBay. Oh my gosh. Because it was out of print and it was so wild. But the song that stuck with me is the actual theme song to the movie. And it's by a guy named Tim Fian. He was never really anything big. There is an actual music video for the song based on the soundtrack clips of the movie. It's a song called where's the fire. It's catchy enough that my wife was caught on video, like, dancing and humming along to it <laughs> while the movie was on. And my wife is not as nostalgic as all of us. Uh, she was born in 1984, and she's kind of of the belief that if something kind of passed her by when she was younger, she never really goes back to look at it. Right, she's kind right. of looking forward, not looking back. And I turned the corner with her on that movie. She will sit and watch that movie. She enjoys that movie. She enjoys the song. Um, you know, we've got the baby now, you know, he's a year old and the other night when it was on, he's sitting there and he's just kind of staring at the TV and he doesn't grasp the awesomeness of it yet. But within a couple of years, you know, one day he will. Yes. One day he will. He will inherit the greatness. (laughs) He will. He will. But um, that's just one of my all time favorites, uh, pops up on cable. It used to be on a, uh, a channel from New York every Halloween season. We used to get WPIX from New York here in Rhode Island and they used to do uh, shocktober. Uh, and they show all thrillers and horror movies and everything. And that movie used to air on there. So the actual first time I saw it was on commercial television. But then through the years, came on HBO, and I made sure to record it, and then eventually bought the uh, you know the real VHS and the real DVD. Uh, but I did find the theme song, talking about Napster, on Napster back in the day. Oh, so nice. So I still have that on a hard drive, and that is always on like an iPod playlist or you know, whatever I'm listening to at the time, that's one of my, it's become one of my essential songs. 
Well, it's funny with soundtracks because they are kind of a very specific thing that you, even now, you can't just go to like Amazon or somewhere and download a, a soundtrack necessarily. Like they, they didn't have big print runs. They weren't necessarily, I mean, most of them are not kept in print in any way. Uh, because I was looking for the soundtrack to the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And it's not, you can't just download it anywhere. It's, it's not just out there available. Like you have to do a little, you have to either order a physical copy, uh, or, you know, use nefarious means to get your hands on that. There are some. Well, I do have turtle power and spin that wheel on a hard drive. So if you really want them, I, I've got turtle power and turtle rhapsody, but I definitely want, uh, cause I mean, partners in crime, come on. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I, that's another I, one that's on my iPod, so don't feel bad. I'm right there with you on that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just such an odd thing that that uh, you know those because when you've bought the soundtrack back in the day, those songs in that order are just kind of a magical thing. Like it's not it's not the same to have to hunt around and find them. Like I I want the soundtrack. I want that track listing that way. Right. You want everything. You don't want to do it by you know piece by piece. Right. You want the, the right. whole night. And I think as we get further ahead with the whole streaming, you know, streaming media, we lose sight, you know, and whether it's nefarious means or, or legally through Amazon or whatever, I think less and less options are going to be there for us to download, which is sad because essentially we're leasing the rights to something for a temporary amount of time. So if you really want that song and it vanishes from Spotify, or if you really want that movie and Netflix loses the rights to it, what are the odds you're going to see it again if you can't buy it anymore? Right. You know, because... you've got something like that. It's never been released. But if people want to seek it out somehow, how much longer are you going to be able to get your hands on it by whatever means there are? Because who knows if that movie is going to show up on any of the streaming apps? Yeah, absolutely. As, as physical media dies, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of thing goes down well sean you were going to say something yeah well i was gonna say there are certain i mean some of these it's they never actually made it to uh they never made it to digital production whatsoever um so like for instance to tie back to rad and not necessarily intentionally uh that soundtrack was never released on cd it was only ever on cassette and so i've managed to piece together the individual songs uh from various places but there's still there's at least one track that i can't find that that has never been released in any sort of format and unless you can find somebody that has a passable version of the cassette you'll never get that song well and that's that yeah that's another thing about soundtracks is usually they they you know they led with two or three songs by known artists but then you know more often than not the remainder of the tracks were maybe a couple of pieces of score and then some obscure ass artist that you know maybe didn't even have an album come out so uh, you know we're we're losing certain things to time but before we get too deep into sad nostalgia let's continue on with 1986 uh bring it back around to Sean Sean what is your second pick for the excellence of 1986. Well, actually, I want to diverge from my second pick for a brief second because I think that we may have inadvertently buried the lead. Uh, as I went up and as I went online and looked up the soundtrack to the Wraith, <laughs> what did I notice? But Mr. Stan Bush. What? Get out of here, Mr. Stan Bush. Yep, Stan Bush is on that soundtrack. You've got the touch. Also, did a song called "Hearts Versus Hands," which oh, I will be looking up once wow. we get online, and then dig deeper 
and the group Lion, who is responsible for the Transformers theme from yes. the movie. Yes, the one of the most nerd chill inducing songs ever. Yes. They're also on that soundtrack. Holy shit. And they have two songs on that soundtrack. It's, which So this clearly is the best soundtrack that has ever been put. To, wow. <laughs> I told you. Like, I it's, made uh, my words. In spite of the fact that it has one of the weakest Motley Crue songs ever. It, it, it's <laughs> in the boys' room, which is – I absolutely, as a Crue fan, I hate that song. But everything else on here more than makes up for it, and I about lost my mind. Um, when I was like, I, I was like, why does Lion sound familiar? And then I went and looked. I was like, that's why Lion sounds familiar. Um, and so then bringing that all back around, yes, one of the other glorious, glorious things uh, in 1986 was the Transformers movie. Um, and uh, to date, it's the only Transformers movie that I will ever actually acknowledge the existence of. Um, I, I I don't like any of the new ones. Um, like most kids in 1986, I was devastated by the by the death of Optimus Prime. Spoiler! 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 Spoilers <laughs> for a movie that's 30 plus years old, uh, or 30 years 30 old. 30 exactly, I, which I is math. why we're doing this. Yeah, I, 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 I'm good with math. Um, I have an English degree. I don't know how to do math. Uh, yeah, it, it, amazing. Um, and then, like, because we had watched uh, a, an entire season if not maybe more two seasons maybe by this point of the transformers constantly shooting at each other and missing um and then suddenly everybody becomes an expert marksman and people are dying left and right and then optimus prime who you are expecting to save the day dies and you get the voice of orson wells in what turned out to be his final uh cinematic performance ever (laughs) was unicron um just an amazing movie. Totally, uh, it for a little while I was, I, like I said, I was devastated. Optimus Prime was dead. I didn't know what to do. Then they came out with new toys, and then I was like, oh, well, I need the new toys. Uh, I need, I need a Hot Rodimus, uh, and I need an Ultra Magnus. Um, and actually, just today, uh, got some new fists for an original G1 Ultra Magnus. Oh, you always fisting. Yeah, <laughs> you know me. That's part of. That's why I'm part of the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show Show. That's right. Appearing once again at Dragon Con this year. Uh, yeah, Transformers the movie. What? And, and and you're right. The it's interesting how inextricable the soundtracks are from the movies at this point. But not only featuring Orson Welles, but featuring Leonard Nimoy, uh, Judd yep. Nelson, and uh, the old guy Richard Robert Stack. Yes, Robert, Robert Stack. Stack. Robert Stack. Uh, and uh, don't forget Eric Idle. Uh, yeah, right, as Retgar. Yeah, so you were like, what? This is – and um, and then the fantastic uh, – speaking of the soundtrack, the fantastic Weird Al, Dare to be Stupid. Well, and that's – you know, there were three moments in this movie that blew my mind. It was when Optimus Prime died, when Spike said shit, right. and – when Dare to be Stupid started playing while everybody was dancing around on the junk planet. Yeah. Absolutely crazy to see those things in the theater. But to me, one of the most interesting things about Transformers the movie is the aftermath and the fact that the cartoon, the the following season of the cartoon, actually incorporated the movie. And we now had Hot Rod, or uh, Rodimus Prime and Cup and Blur, like... They skipped ahead and followed the movie in continuity, which is something that you didn't necessarily expect at the time. 
from it, from media. God, arguably, you almost still like I can't think of a. I feel like it's people are when it's so novel when people see Agents of Shield interact with the with the MCU with the, yeah. the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe. Um, the fact that that still seems like a novel concept makes this even more novel. The fact that it was not only did 30 you have a, years ago, right? You have a, a cartoon property like a legit kids property launches the film, which that in and of itself is huge, and then maintains the continuity between the two. Like that, you could actually drop that in as just an extended episode of the show and continue to watch it chronologically and have it be all the same. Was. Yeah, even even as a 10-year-old, I recognized that that was like a big deal and special, and I, I was impressed because I was, I was picky. I was picky about voices because I did notice that Rodimus Prime suddenly had a different-sounding voice, mm. um, that Galvatron suddenly had a different-sounding voice. <laughs> but the fact that the the events of the movie actually had impact and were not this this separate thing uh was very impressive and and still to me is is an impressive thing for hasbro and and for uh sunbow to have done it it weirdly it felt like it legitimized the transformers yeah like as a kid you're like you know like oh well this is just kid stuff but then when it becomes a movie you're suddenly like Oh, but it's a movie. Well, I think even as a kid, you can tell when the creators are taking something seriously and when they're just kind of throwing it out there. And mm-hmm. that made me feel like, oh, they're taking this seriously. They care about storytelling, even though I, I you know, I, I don't think I understood the concept of storytelling at the time, but uh, I, I was still impressed with what was going on. Well, yeah, and well, and you contrast it with a year later. We got the Masters of the Universe movie that was a, a, a steaming All right, dumpster let's not. fire. Let's not, right, right. <laughs> uh, Beth, Beth or Chris? Beth, you were a little bit older. Chris, you were a little bit younger. Uh, do you guys have memories of uh, the Transformers movie coming out? I don't think uh, it's going to come with... as a huge surprise to anyone that I have never seen that movie. Oh, what? Oh well, my God! Not even seen it? No. I, I mean, I watched the show at home when I was a little kid, and I'd come home from school. I'd watch the show, but but by the time movies were coming out, I, I was trying to be grown up. I You're was 12, trying to go see care. pretty. I was trying to go see Pretty in Pink. Yeah, I was pubescent. Yeah. I was, you know, I was girling. That's you could do both. No, you not, well back. I, the, I back now then you know couldn't. how to do both. Yeah, back then you <laughs> couldn't. You really couldn't. Chris, what about you? I was a uh, I was a big Transformers fan as a kid, so of course I went and saw the movie. Um, much like Sean, I only acknowledge this one. Um, you know, as much as I do like some of the things that Michael Bay does. Um, God help me for saying that. <laughs> the, uh, the Transformers series. <laughs> the Transformers series was uh, was not one of them. Um, <laughs> you know, I do have fond memories of this. I was more of a uh, Masters of the Universe guy, um, but Transformers and GI Joe were kind of like uh, neck and neck for second place. So. Seeing this and then seeing all these toys that I had only had for like six months to a year getting killed was kind of uh, <laughs> mentally crippling at the time because I'm like, wait a minute, he's dead. How do I play with him now? Um, but it, you know, it, it is something that I still have a fondness for. I still have a copy of it. We'll watch it from time to time. Um, some surrealness to it as you get older, and you know, like you said, Weird Al playing, just like these things that you don't think of when you're a six year old. You're just watching the violence on the screen, the cartoon violence on the screen. But no, it's something that always stuck with me and definitely stands out as the best of the Transformers uh, cinematic experiences. Well, since we're on the topic of cartoons, I'll go ahead and throw my uh, second pick out, and that is the real Ghostbusters. 
Yes. Which, to me, was my first real exposure to the Ghostbusters because my parents, for whatever odd reason, wouldn't let me see the movie. Uh, and I, I, you know, my friends and I would play Ghostbusters. We would, you know, we, I had not seen it. Some of them had. Uh, I knew I wanted to be Bill Murray's character when we'd run around. Yes, outside, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, we would. And see, that's something you could pull off in the house. Yeah, I know, but we, we were outside with, uh, various water guns and whatnot that we had kind of in our minds changed into, to proton packs and positron sliders, but we would play Ghostbusters even though I had not seen the movie. I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was what I'd seen in the commercials, which was they used these backpacks and gun things to catch ghosts. So I loved Ghostbusters, but I had not seen it. And then finally, the real Ghostbusters uh, came on TV towards the end of the year uh, in 1986, and I had my Ghostbusters that I could watch. And the second I saw it, I wanted the toys. You know, they had all the role-play gear, uh, the big blue backpack with the uh, the wand attached and the big yellow cord. They had all the figures that looked I mean, this was an amazing toy line, one of the best of the 80s, I would say, as far as likenesses for the human characters. The ghosts, they didn't really attempt to relate to the cartoon at all, but in a way that was good because Kenner was just letting uh, these guys that were designing these toys go wild and create all of these incredible ghosts and weird vehicles that transformed into giant ghost-praying mantises and shit like it was a really creative, innovative toy line uh, that found good ways to refresh itself with the fright features and all kinds of other, you know, they, they kept releasing the guys in different ways. But to me, for years, the real Ghostbusters cartoon was my Ghostbusters. And I knew Egon looked weird, and I knew Ray was maybe a little fatter and dumber than he should be, but I, I, I adored that cartoon. Uh, it was one of the... It was, it, it, to an extent, became my favorite because at the time, uh, G.I. Joe was changing, Transformers was changing, uh, and Real Ghostbusters was something new and exciting that I, I definitely latched onto. I, I loved everything about it, and going back and watching it today, it's still a smart cartoon. It still has good writing and good storytelling, and, you know, in, it, to me, it's always been the sequel to the original movie. And I don't dislike Ghostbusters 2. Uh, it's a fun movie. But, you know, I like to think that what happens in the real Ghostbusters cartoon is is what followed what happened in the movie. Because to me, it just makes more sense. Do you guys, uh, you know, Ghostbusters in general, what are you guys around that time? Because this was two years after the movie came out. Uh, what are your memories of the Ghostbusters in 1986? Uh, it was a regular after-school uh, viewing. You know, it was uh, come home from school, sit down, you watch. Uh, like, oh, God, there was what, real Ghostbusters, Rambo, which why the hell did they ever turn Rambo into a cartoon? <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. That's right, right. That's, yeah. But, yeah, so Rambo, Chuck Norris, Karate Commando. Actually, you know what? I'm writing that down right now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, cartoons and toy lines based on totally inappropriate things. Right. Really violent. So that's like the uh, 12 inch Schwarzenegger commando that I got in 1985 for Christmas. Right. Right. What is exactly. that doing? That, that doesn't even make any sense. 
Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so but yeah, it, it became regular. Like that was the afternoon. Like I watched GI Joe and I watched Rambo and I watched Transformers and I watched Real Ghostbusters. I remember being a little confused because this one, the, part of the reason why they called it the Real Ghostbusters, is because the filmation Ghost Ghost Space Busters and jumping off the popularity of the movie had hit TV first, right? Well, here's the story with that. Um, filmation back in the seventies had a show a live action show called Ghost Busters. Two right, separate it was kind of Sid and Marty Croftish. Uh no, it wasn't even that. It was it was uh two guys who were very two guys that were very Abbott and Costello ish uh and a gorilla. Yeah, right. A person in a gorilla suit uh just it's silly. It's a silly show, but it's a fun watch if you can you can find a couple episodes on YouTube. Uh, so Filmation owned the rights to the term Ghostbusters, and when Sony wanted to do this movie, they had to license the term Ghostbusters from Filmation. Uh, and Filmation was whatever, who gives, nobody's gonna give a shit about any Ghostbusters, do whatever you want with it, you know, we'll take our money and sit back and smile. And then the movie was the blockbuster that it was, and Filmation actually managed to get their Ghostbusters cartoon on the air before the real Ghostbusters hit, because of the way that they're, you know, I love Filmation. Uh, I adored Lou Shamer until the end of time, but they had some corner cutting and some cost cutting techniques that allowed them to get things out a little quicker. So they managed to get Ghostbusters to air uh, a week or two before the real Ghostbusters came out. But they still owned the rights to use Ghostbusters, so they were able to throw that cartoon out there and say, hey, yeah, we're going to cash in on this too. Yeah, well, and smart. I mean, very smart for them to do that. Yeah, I remember being as as a kid, not knowing the other show. I was like, "Who are these people ripping off Ghostbusters? What, they what don't is even this have monkey? Egon." Yeah, like there's <laughs> yeah, not yeah. even Egon in here. What is this? That's dumb. Right. Um, and so being very confused, and then like boycotting it, and <laughs> uh, and they had toys. Right, there was a yeah, whole toy they line. Had a toy for... line too, and it's actually a fantastic yeah. toy line. Uh, the cartoon. I, I will say does not hold up very well, but the toy line is excellent. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that was regular. I mean, that was b- before Disney afternoons eventually took over. That was, that was the afternoon. That was when I wasn't watching rad. That's what I was. Watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Beth, you were a little bit older. Did you see ghostbusters like in a timely manner or was it even on your radar? Uh, I know I saw the movie when it when it came out, and I loved it. And I I did actually watch the cartoon, and I remember enjoying the cartoon, despite the the few flaws that you mentioned. But then I also remember being really irritated by the fact that Slimer was a character. Sure, it was sure. just one little thing in the movie, and then it's this big character in the show, and I really couldn't get past that well and and you're right he is the equivalent of like snarf or t-bob or orco or any of those annoying sidekick characters that they threw into cartoons in the 80s but for me because it was slimer i could deal with it until they turned the cartoon into slimer and the real ghostbusters and then that was that was a step too far for me (laughs) well that's what i was going to say like that this is where I went back and watched the movie uh, not that long ago, and in my head, I was remembering Slimer playing a major role. And then when I watched the movie, I was like, "God, Slimer's not really in this at all." And I no. guess that came from the cartoon then. Yeah, that's it's and and 
the success of the cartoon is what led to Slimer's inclusion in the second movie. Because in the second movie, he actually has the role where he's, uh, you know, he interacts with Tully and then he's driving the bus. Like they were like, well, I guess we got to bring him back. Uh, Chris, what about you? Being younger, what are your Ghostbusters memories? Uh, I actually saw the movie when it got released on home video. Uh, my parents, my family, they were always pretty cool about letting me watch things that PG-13 or R-rated, um, you know, within reason. But uh, I was exposed to a lot of stuff that you wouldn't think a normal six-year-old would have seen. Uh, you know, I had seen Jason and, and Freddy, so Ghostbusters wasn't about to uh, oh, wow. scare me. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were Yeah, fine. it's... Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, you know, like I said, within reason. So if it was something brutal, it'd be like, okay, well, hide your eyes because there's going to be something really gross here. But, you know, the, I just thought the guy in the hockey mask was cool. You know, <laughs> that was pretty much how, how that went. But um, so I had seen the movie, uh, you know, and I had enjoyed the movie. And obviously, you know, these are all things that I would rewatch as I get older and pick up on more things and get smarter to it. I loved the cartoon. I remember having the first wave of figures with the the normal guys, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, Slimer. Um, you mentioned the fright features. I kind of fell out of the line pretty early on, um, just, you know, different stuff coming out and exposure to different things. But I remember having a Venkman where his eyes bugged out and his jaw would drop. Yes. Like he, he would give that shocked expression. Um, so I was collecting the toys. I was following the cartoon. I remember when it changed over to Slimer and the real Ghostbusters. And I think that was just like you mentioned, like, you know, the, the Orcos and the sidekick characters. To me, looking back on it as an adult, I think it's just a way for it to relate more to the kids as opposed to the actual Ghostbusters fans. Because sure. if you are a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you don't care about this guy named Peter who's being a smartass. You want to see the cool-looking characters, the goofy characters. So, you know, I get why they did it from a marketing perspective and, and ratings and, and making the toys. Obviously, the, the creatures and the people with the features are going to be the ones that sell most. But it was something mm -hmm. that... It was something that I would kind of put in the middle of my fandom, um, and I would probably say that about the Ghostbusters franchise as a whole. It's something that I enjoy. It's something that I'll look back on, but it was never my end-all, be-all, but I also you know, didn't discount it. So it kind of fell – it kind of put me right in the middle of the path with it. Well, what is let's, – uh, let's move on to our next topic then. What would be something that was at the lead of your fandom in 1986? All right, well – Let's see, because either one of my choices could go this way. Um, go I with would, your favorite, because we may not hit number three. All right, then I will go with this, because the third one, there's kind of a little story to the third one. So uh, at the time, uh, when I was six years old, I had been enrolled in Taekwondo classes for about two years. I uh, started Taekwondo lessons when I was four years old and wound up continuing those until I was a teenager. So I was a huge martial arts fan um karate kid obviously is what every kid watched but i would also watch the ninja craze era movies the shokasugis revenge of the ninja all that type of stuff and in 1986 there was a little movie released called no retreat no surrender oh wow oh and for those who are not familiar with this movie uh, or for those who need a little bit of a refresher, No Retreat, No Surrender basically lifted the plot to Karate Kid. It was about this, you know, misfit, underappreciated, you know, suburban kid who loved martial arts and his father was attacked and had his leg broken by this uh, mafia syndicate guy whose Russian henchman was played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. In his first main movie role, uh, he, he was Ivan Krasinski, the evil Russian, and they moved to Seattle to escape the mafia, 
and the kid was, you know, beat up by the Taekwondo bullies and because they were in Seattle, he went to visit the grave of Bruce Lee and wound up becoming trained in Taekwondo and Jeet Kundo, I'm sorry, by the spirit of Bruce Lee. They actually had an actor portray the ghost of Bruce Lee, but they couldn't say Bruce Lee, so they called him Lee Doga in the movie. <laughs> and Naturally. It built up to the ultimate showdown at the kickboxing match where Jean-Claude Van Damme's uh, you know, finishing move was to tie someone up in the ropes by backflipping them through the middle and top rope so they were tangled up and just devastate them. And, uh, you know, the kid got in the ring and it was the whole, you know, this is what the ghost taught me. And there's actually two cuts to the movie. There's an international cut where when he's in the ring facing off with Van Damme, um, there's like extended scenes throughout the movie. The soundtrack is completely different. When he's in the ring fighting against Van Damme, it shows him flashing back to previous scenes where, you know, the ghost of Bruce Lee was teaching him how to do certain things, and that's what he would use against Van Damme. If you watch the American cut, which is actually my favorite because the soundtrack is, you know, Americanized and total 80s motivational, you know, rock music and everything. Um, it, if you're watching that final fight scene, and you can watch them on YouTube, it looks like there's jump cuts, like the editor just kind of fell asleep at the wheel and didn't, you know, split <laughs> the movie right. Right, right. But it's actually just the same scene they just omitted the whole bruce lee stuff it's just you know the fight and the music dies down and then you know the motivational comeback with the you know the big you know rocky style music at the end i love this movie i still love this movie as much of a fan as i am of the karate kid i will take this movie over the karate kid any day of the week um just it's really the first martial arts movie that I latched onto, um, and being a kid, uh, you know, having seen like the Bruce Lee movies when I was a kid, I'm six years old. I've been taking karate for, you know, like I said, you know, a little more than a year, almost two years. So Bruce Lee to me was, you know, the legend. You know, I, I saw the movies on, you know, basic cable and everything growing up. And now here's a movie where a teenage kid who's into karate just like I am is getting trained by his ghost and he's fighting this guy and doing these backflip kicks. It was just, <laughs> it, it's a surreal movie to go back and watch, but it is something that's near and dear to my heart. I, I will take that movie over the original Karate Kid any day and certainly over the remake any day. Well, and it, yeah, it spawned a couple of sequels as well, it, which, uh, it did. Spawned, uh, it spawned two of them. Now, I don't know how much research you know about it or what you know. There was supposed to be the, the original sequel, No Retreat, No Surrender Part 2, was supposed to feature the same characters, uh, Jason, the main kid, and Ivan, which was Jean-Claude Van Damme's character. And they were going to film, I want to say they were going to film in Colombia. They, they were going to film abroad. And Jean-Claude Van Damme didn't he wasn't up for it basically. And he actually talked Kurt McKinney, who was the main actor into skipping out on the role. So they had oh. to basically recreate part two with these new characters that paid no mind to the first one. So it became more of kind of like a straight up actioner. Um, Cynthia Rothrock made an appearance. Um, for those who don't know who she is, she's pretty much the quintessential martial artist female. And she's actually who Sonya Blade from Mortal Kombat was based on. Oh, wow. She, um, uh, <laughs> I just saw um, Undefeatable. Oh, that, uh, <laughs> with which, the best fight scene of all time. <laughs> with the best fight scene of all time. And kids, just go put that into YouTube. And uh, and that's exactly what you will get. You will get the best fight scene of all time. And, uh, involving Cynthia Rothrock. Rock, Rock. 
in a sling. Uh, she's uh, about 40 years old portraying a 21-year-old college girl. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's the, she's putting her younger sister through college by being a That's waitress. What, yep. By being a waitress and an underground street fighter. Yep, with her own gang. Yes, yes. Uh, whew. Sorry, didn't mean to totally derail things there. No, 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 no that, that's, that, that's that's completely that's, fine. That's that's a, that's a classic. I, I everybody should go seek out Undefeatable, or at least that fight scene. There was a rumor, you know, years ago that they were going to remake No Retreat, No Surrender somehow. Um, basically, when like the expendable stuff started coming out and like the whole action craze was getting big again, but I don't think that's something that we'll ever see the light of day. You know, I don't think that the ghost of Bruce Lee <laughs> is something that's going <laughs> to the cinema this day and age. Um, I don't know. I, don't know. I like the ghost of Billy Blanks teaching them Taibo or something. I don't know. <laughs> that's I was gonna. I could see WWE films taking that on and and oh, maybe. Oh, you know what? That, you know what? They could do that. And, and Rusev as the Russian. <laughs> I, you know, when he said that he makes people fall back over the ring and get their arms tied up in the ropes. I mean, that's just that's classic heel behavior. Like that's how many times of Andre and how to work. Right, exactly. Well, and then Dean Ambrose would be the one to break it because he'd fall under the ropes and do his stupid clothesline and. Right, that would right. be the uh, that would be the big finish of the movie. Uh, <laughs> wrestling. Another solid deep cut, Chris. I, I like that. I have. I again, it's one that I know I have seen in my youth, but uh, it's one that I need to be refreshed on for sure. It's a, it's another one that's not officially on Region One DVD. They did release it internationally. Um, it was just something that was on VHS. Uh, again, I have both versions on DVD, uh, because it's something that I had to seek out. Like I, I couldn't go through life not owning that. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I know that as, feeling, you know, as you know, and, and, but that's, you know, that's, that's how we are, you know, as, as geeky as this stuff sounds, it's, it's what gets us through the day. It's the stuff that we love and it's something that we've got a passion for. So if I'm wrong for loving a movie about the ghost of Bruce Lee taking on evil Russian Jean-Claude Van Damme, then I don't want to be right. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, speaking of passion, Beth, what is your second big 1980 picks? It was really tough choice. In case we don't get to the third one, I'm going to go with my second one. I had to choose between Aliens, Pretty in Pink, and then, of course, I went with Labyrinth. Oh, wow. Oh, well, yes. Because I fucking love some Muppets, and I loved David Bowie. Even then, I loved his music. And his pants in that movie made me want to go through puberty faster. I was going to say, yeah, let's be honest. Everybody came away from that movie with only one thing on their mind, and it was David Bowie's Godpiece. Pants, magic pants. <laughs> Those pants actually prevented David Bowie from going through puberty, so that's kind of <laughs> So what was your labyrinth experience? Like, how did you see it in the theater? What was uh, what was the build up? Because you know, back then you see a trailer and you really know what the fuck you're getting. It's it's just a matter of well, I guess I'll go see this. Well, it was the the sell of the Muppets. Plus, I already loved the artwork, um, and I'm a huge Brian Proud fan to this day. Love everything he does. Um, I also immediately made my mom buy me the soundtrack. I had to have everything. I know I had a pseudonymous at one point. I It was just all around a great movie. Sarah Connolly was great. David Bowie was awesome. 
songs and dancing and, and fun Muppets. And, and it wasn't as dark as the Dark Crystal. And it it was darker than watching the Muppet show or a Muppet movie. Just everything. Well, and that's what, I mean, at the time, that's what Henson was really starting to get into, wanting to kind of push the boundaries of what his company could do. Uh, I watched it with my son for the first time the other night. And, you know, he it's it's hit and miss. You, you don't know. When you've got a kid, you have no idea what they're going to enjoy, what they're going to latch on to, what they're going to want to get up and leave the room in the middle of that you're like, no, this is classic. What are you doing? <laughs> you just don't know. Uh, and we sat and we watched the whole movie together. And I hadn't seen it in a few years. The last time I had tried to watch Labyrinth was in probably about 95 uh, or 6. I was well on my way to a tremendous hangover and staying over at a friend's house downtown. And I was like, oh, I'll watch Labyrinth. And I was wrong in thinking that Labyrinth was a good idea. Oh, when you're hungover, no. Uh, well, <laughs> when I was well on my way to, or, to or a even being drunk. sick-ass yeah. hangover. Well, whimsy uh, is terrible for a hangover. Yeah. Uh, but watch some of those you, scenes. They'll, they'll make you nauseous. Well, Just I think now. the hand the hands are where I had to check out, but <laughs> I, I can see that watching and get, watching That's it fair. again the other night, uh, it still stands up. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Jennifer uh, Jennifer Connelly, but considering her role is is that she is supposed to be an annoying bitch uh, when the movie <laughs> opens, I was like, wow, she's on it. She's got this well in hand. Uh, and, and you actually do get behind her character, which is very interesting because, uh, you know, in the eighties, things were a little different. Character development was different. And I feel like putting, making somebody that is genuinely unlikable, the protagonist of the movie was a bold move because as the movie goes on, she has to get you on her side. And she does. By the end of the movie, you're like, yeah, find find your little brother, beat the Goblin King. Because she's up... Not, not only is she playing this unlikable character, but she's going up against David Bowie, who's one of the coolest human beings that our, you know, genetic whatever has ever produced. So you kind of, like... The, the, it's, the deck is stacked against poor young Jennifer Connelly in this movie. I but, will argue the opposite, and say that I actually wanted her to not get her stupid little brother back and just go with David Bowie. <laughs> he had way more to offer than her family. Well, and yeah, that you're right. It, and it is an interesting, you know, there's a whole moralistic po- viewpoint there in that she had the opportunity to get everything she ever wanted. Uh, and she did choose her family over that. But, you know, David Bowie was able to play sinister well enough that you're like, oh, he's creepy. I, I can't. Uh, you know, he's still David Bowie, but in watching the movie, it's just like, wow, he's, he's doing a good job of being this villainous character, this like kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a little Satan like with the temptation or whatever. Uh, it's just all put together so well. And the, the Muppets are flawless. The puppetry is flawless. The, the scenery, everything about it, it, it holds up so very well. And, you know, it's another, and, and I'm not somebody who likes to shit on CGI because CG has its place, but give me live action Muppets that can actually interact with the cast of the movie over computer animated stuff any day of the week. 
Well, that movie didn't need the CGI. Even if they'd had it, it didn't need it. But they, it, you know, in modern day, they would have used it. If they, if they were to do a remake of Labyrinth, it would be heavily uh, CG. Don't even speak that out into the universe. <laughs> I Well, it's, I'm sure it's already been spoken, believe me. Uh, Chris and Sean, what about you guys? Do you guys have any Labyrinth-specific memories? Uh, I loved it when it came out. Absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, did appreciate that it was less freaky. Um, not that that meant I didn't like it, just that it was less freaky than um, uh, Dark Crystal, which I which I totally was into. Um, actually, recently I got the chance to go see a viewing of Labyrinth at the Atlanta Center for Puppetry Arts, which was an amazing place to go see Labyrinth. Um, they're you know they're getting the new Henson though they have the new Henson wing and they're adding a whole Labyrinth section, uh, and seeing that movie with a theater full of people that are all geeking out about the fact that you're seeing Labyrinth and know every single word to every song and every line of dialogue. It was, it was a blast. It was an awesome experience to see it because, um, you know, it's one of those, you don't always get to do that. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, that shared appreciation of, of what we were watching was just, was fantastic. And so it, it managed to take me back to watching it as a kid in 86 but also appreciating new things that uh, they come with being an adult. Chris, you got any uh, labyrinth fondness? Uh, labyrinth, I I don't mind it. Um, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not as much of a fan as you guys might be. When I first saw it, when I was a kid, I kind of watched it with uh, with blinders on because I was not really that big of a fan of puppetry. Uh, at that age, in fact, uh, actually, this would tie into 1986. If you remember the uh, Land of Confusion video by Genesis, yes, uh, yes, that video scared the crap out of six-year-old me. <laughs> oh no! To the extent I would leave the room. So Labyrinth didn't scare me, but it was kind of like, oh, a puppet show. Like I was just kinda right, like, right. You know, not not as into it. I I watched it as I get older and definitely appreciate it. And going back to the point that you made about how Henson was trying to get away from the stuff that he had previously done and do something different. It fascinated me how he did something different and he wound up kind of regretting it because of the commercial failure at the time before the cult following had picked up on it that he kind of got, you know, uh, on the outs because the movie didn't do as well as everyone had expected. And now, you know, here we are years later and years after he's passed and it's got so much fondness going for it and screenings and the cult following and everything. And, you know, it just shows that sometimes it takes a long time for some, not a long time, but it takes a little while for something to latch on so from my perspective to me it was just a fun movie um my wife actually likes it she, you know, we've got it on dvd it's one of her favorites so no doubt you know little zach will get exposure to it at some point and hopefully he appreciates puppets a little more than i did at that <laughs> point in my life uh, so you trade off between that and the wraith you're like Here's exactly the wraith, and then mom wants you to watch labyrinth <laughs> and my luck he's not gonna like either of them he's gonna go off and just find his own thing which is fine he's gonna like michael bay transformers and then You'll feel like, where did I go wrong? Oh, uh, no. If you want something good from Michael Bay? Let's watch Bad Boys. Come on. All right. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, it's, we've discussed some really fun stuff in 1986. I asked everybody to bring three items, but we have been talking for a little over an hour now, and I think maybe it's time to just go for it and talk about the bad stuff of 1986. Have you guys all got. Uh, a sore spot, uh, a 
a uh, blemish on the pop culture landscape, if you will. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm going to kick this one off. If any of you says rad, I'm going to find it. Now I kind of want to. (laughs) Because, believe it or not, there are things worse than rad that happened in 1986. (laughs) And one of them was Van Halen recruiting Sammy Hagar as their lead singer. Uh, I adored Van Halen in my youth. I was 10 in 1986, so... Not only was I at optimal pop culture absorption age, but I was really learning about music and what I liked, and MTV was at its height. Uh, And David Lee Roth, to me, was a godlike figure. Uh, I loved it, you know, and, and that's the thing is I've always been a frontman guy. I'm not a musician, so I don't look at guitarists or bassists or drum. Well, nobody looks at drummers, but, uh, hey, Rush fan. <laughs> uh but no, seriously, <laughs> David Lee Roth was the man. He was Van Halen to me, which I understand now is not really an accurate statement, but when 5150 came out, a friend of mine played it for me, and I did not believe him that it was Van Halen because you had it was it wasn't fun at all, and you had Sammy Hagar, who I think is a great rock guy and who's has done a lot of great rock and roll stuff, but he does not do what I want from Van Halen, which is fun, hard rock. Uh, and granted, nobody will ever do it like David Lee Roth, like Diamond Dave did it. But it broke my heart when I first heard Sammy Hagar with Van Halen. And it's one of the times in my life that I've been done with something. I was done with Van Halen at that point. Now, I still, don't get me wrong, I still love the David Lee Roth stuff. But I I severed my ties. I said, that that's it. No more Van Halen uh, going forward for me. It was just too much. I, I And to this day... I can't listen to Van Hagar. Uh, it, it has, as I have aged, I have sort of mellowed on a lot of things. Van Hagar is not one of them. I, I still absolutely detest Sammy Hagar's work with Van Halen. And the reason behind uh, the breakup is that Eddie Van Halen couldn't stop putting things up his nose long enough to have rehearsals and be professional in the way that David Lee Roth wanted the band to be. So, was just saying something when. Uh, <laughs> You're like, <laughs> David Lee Roth is the one that had it together. Well, no, he David Lee Roth is a professional. I mean, he, you know, as wild as he is, as crazy as he is, he is a professional rock and roller. He is serious about making rock and roll. Uh, and, and Eddie Van Halen couldn't get his shit together. So that's, you know, that that's how it was. Do you guys, how do you guys feel about Van Halen? Do you dislike Van Hagar? Do you not care? How did that break down for you? Uh, I have a, a few soft spots in my heart for Van Hagar songs. I don't think of them as Van Halen songs, though. Um, it weirdly, like I, I've always forgot that Yankee Rose wasn't just a Van Halen song <laughs> um, <laughs> because I just everything that came off of Edelman Smile, which is where Dave went, I was like, this is amazing, and that yeah. sounded more like what I was used to from Van Halen. Just because it was Dave, because I was so in the cult of Dave. Um, 
And I mean, you can't go wrong with Diamond Dave. So, so there is that. But in hindsight, there are like Dreams is, and that may or may not be because it's from the opening of the Power Rangers movie. But uh, I really do love Dreams um, and uh, a couple other songs by Van Hagar. I feel like the songs were less fun, but they felt uh, a little more mature. Um, and and so I could appreciate them as that, and so I just kind of thought of that as like, oh well, that was Sammy Hagar's band, um, and then Van and David Lee Roth was still doing the Van Halen music. Yeah, and and that's I mean it is. Edom and Smile was very much a, a successor to Van Halen's work. Uh, Beth or Chris, do you guys have any feelings about Van Halen? At, at the time, I could not have cared less because I was listening to stuff like In Excess and. New Order and the Smiths, but at, at going back now, I really honestly can't listen to either one because I've heard the no music version of Running With The Devil too many times <laughs> where I cannot listen to David Lee Roth sing without hearing that in my head. I can understand <laughs> and I that. just crack up every single time I hear him sing now. But I still hate Van Hager. <laughs> That's all I wanted. What about you, Chris? What were your? Uh, do you have any fondness for Van Halen? It might have been a little bit uh, out of your range at that time. Oh no! Actually, I had the uh, forty-five of Jump uh, as oh. one of my go-to albums at the time. So I was definitely more of a Dave guy, uh, especially as a kid. Because as I got older. I drifted away from anything new. Um, didn't really, you know, even the, the really commercial stuff like right now, just, you know, it was just radio play. The Pepsi to me. It was song. Nothing to, yes, exactly. It was just, you know, it, it was, it was nothing to, it was nothing to seek out. It was nothing to go crazy for. Um, you know, if we're judging it by where I am today with music, I mean, out of all the songs that I have, the only Van Halen that I have on any playlist or hard drive is stuff that features Dave. I don't have any Sammy songs on anything um you know i wouldn't call them an all-time favorite band or anything like that but it's the stuff especially that 1984 album that oh. i'll go back to if i'm ever in the yeah beautiful beautiful uh, well and that's the thing is van hagar kind of just sounded like everybody else at the time they lost their specialness uh so moving on uh chris what is your what what uh what f what thing left a foul taste in your mouth in 1986 so 1986, my uh, my dud conversation uh, goes to the Centurions toys. Oh no! Uh, what? <laughs> I, I was I you know I watched the cartoon. I thought it was really cool. Like these guys all had like these like special suits and these special abilities. And I had the figures. I had a, a couple of them. I especially the villains though. I just felt that they were really clunkily, if that's a word, clunkily done. Um, just the way that everything connected, it was like, you know, okay, I've got this guy. Now I've got attached eight accessories to him, so I have to hold him with two hands because he can't stand on his own. And he's going to fight <laughs> this doctor who looks like, you know, like the villains look like they were made out of Legos. They were like perfect square bodies with like yeah. little heads on them. So yeah, yeah. it was just kind of like the translation from cartoon to toy disappointed me it's by no means do i hate the centurions because i used to think the cartoon was awesome but just the the translation to the toy market i was just kind of like disappointed as a kid i'm like all right my gi joes compose my he-mans are cool and all have like these cool designs and these guys i'm just like sticking pieces in they're falling over 
So well, you're you're not wrong, and it's interesting you bring that up because I've I've been working on a post for a couple of weeks now uh, to revitalize the Inhumanoids toy line. Like if if somebody was going to do it in the mar- modern market, and I incorporated the Centurions into that, so oh, nice. that you have. Uh, the Inhumanoids armor with the adaptability of the Centurions, which oh, I, okay. yeah, I think would totally work. And, and, you know, maybe back in the day that would have been the thing. Cause you got to make the humans of the Inhumanoids a little more special and you've got to give the Centurions good bad guys. Cause you're right. Their bad guys were shit. <laughs> yeah. And I think they only released like the two villains and everything else was just like a robot. Yes. Just they, a generic- they had Doc Terror and whoever his weird George uh, the Animal. Hacker. Yeah, Hacker, yeah, right. Hacker, his who looked like George the Animal Steel's head on a pile of blue weird parts. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, just really substandard villains. And if you don't have villains, you got nothing. Yeah, yeah I, and the Centurions didn't really click with any other toy line because they were what eight inches. Yeah, uh, yeah, they so. were they were somewhere between six and eight. Yeah, they were very large and they didn't work with anything else. So, so that was, and I think that's also where the disappointment came in because it's like, okay, well, these villain toys suck, but I can't have them fight Skeletor and I can't have them fight Serpentor. So, you know, into the toy box you go. And yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Good call. I, initially, I was upset with you, but now you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean, what is your your bad mojo from '86? Uh, you know, I went back and forth on this one, but then, uh, our little pre-show discussion, I think what I'm going to settle on is the dream team of Brutus the Barber Beefcake and Greg the Hammer Valentine (laughs) losing the tag titles in WrestleMania 2 to the British Bulldogs, who, uh, for reasons unknown, had Ozzy Osbourne in their corner. Um, I mean, that's a real down point for... One Mr. Ed Leslie, booty man, <laughs> Brutus the Barber Beefcake. I'm not sure that he ever really truly rebounded from that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> that might have been, yeah, that that could have been the beginning of the end for, for poor Zodiac. Uh, yes, no, yes, yeah. No. The booty man yeah. got his booty kicked at WrestleMania too. <laughs> <laughs> Beth, what about you? Aside from the Smiths, what was making you sad in 1996? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> Joy division. Uh, I am about to probably piss a lot of people off because I'm going with Howard the Duck. I oh. no, I can't be no, mad you about are that. Right. Howard the Duck, okay. yeah. horrible. God, that was no. I I love it. I'm against be. humanity. Ugh. I'm I'm with you. Uh, yeah, that's a horrible movie. I think like, it's George Lucas's best work. like when leah thompson goes on to do some kind of wonderful eric stoltz should have looked at her and said no you're that chick who wanted to fuck the duck (laughs) end end of the movie yeah but he was rocky dennis so i mean yeah i (laughs) i i saw howard the duck in the theater uh and you know i was i was 10 and I didn't understand a couple of the references, which was fortunate because it meant, meant my mom didn't have to explain things to me about <laughs> duck human interspecies relations. Uh, but I, I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah, dude, nobody wants to think about it, the, the duck uh, anatomy. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I liked it at the time because I kind of didn't know what a shitty movie was. And yeah, it's, it's not a good movie at all, but uh, I, I, I liked it. It didn't offend me. 
Do you, Beth, did you see it in the theater? No, God, no. (laughs) It's, it looked terrible even in the previews. I just know that we rented it as soon as it came out on video because my brother really wanted to see it because he's younger than me and dumber. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's not one of those where I look back and go, oh, that was an enjoyable time in my life, and this movie is a part of that, so I'll hold a fondness for it. It was a steaming pile of shit then, and it is a steaming pile of shit now. Would, There's you, no fondness. Did you feel actual shame after it was, after the credits rolled? Were you like, I, I'm embarrassed that I watched this? I knew I wasn't the only one who had watched it, so I didn't feel too terrible about myself, but I felt terrible about... That hour and a half, I was never going to get back. <laughs> I hated I, the villain. I, for whatever reason, I felt like the villain was so weak in that that it just made the whole... I don't know. The whole movie was a shitstorm. And I uh, really liked Jeffrey Jones. Yeah. Just all the time and everything else. Just There was nothing redeemable about this movie. So Howard the Duck, no good. Big thumbs down from everyone. Chris, do you, do you have, have, have you seen Howard the Duck? I own Howard the Duck proudly. Uh, oh, boy. Now, I'm about to piss a lot of people off because huh? I am not a Star Wars fan. So hey, when I say that I find it to be George Lucas's finest work, I actually mean that. <laughs> everything you said on the show is now going to be edited to just be <laughs> It's just me, Beth, and Sean talking on the show. <laughs> I have uh, – I, I never I never got into the Star Wars. And believe me, I'm, I'm not hating by any means because look at some of the stuff that I like. Um <laughs> But I, I've never, I've never been into it. So Howard the Duck for me, and you know, the, I never really, you know, I'm a comic guy, but I was wasn't into the comic back then. Yeah. So for me, it was just this cool movie about this duck, and you know, uh, maybe it was because he, you know, did the fight at the beginning in the alley when he taught quack foo to those little thugs and stuff like that. You know, maybe that's what made me like it because I was the karate kid at that point. But it's, it's just one of those movies, and maybe this kind of falls into the category of nostalgia making something mean more than what it would actually be if it was. Modern yeah. times, yeah, yeah. because uh, I think I've mentioned this on previous shows. You know, one of my all-time favorite go-to watchable movies that I never get sick of is a movie that pretty much everybody on Earth is sick of before they even see it, and that's the Garbage Pail Kids. Oh so, no! So when we just clearly have horrible taste in movies. <laughs> No, don't get me wrong. I own the usual suspects and Shawshank. Like I'm right up there with the A list. But if, I you wanted know, to see wanna... the race, but now, <laughs> now you're questioning things. I'm, I'm questioning. <laughs> I I have I have very eclectic taste. Uh, and, and Howard the Duck does fall in line. I'm staring at the DVD right now. It's front and center on one of the shelves. It, it is something that I have a fondness for. Um, you know, maybe the nostalgia kind of blinds me a little to it. I'm not saying that it should have won the Academy Award that year or anything like that. I, I am completely self-aware of the fact that it was a bomb. Same thing with Garbage Pail Kids and all these other movies that I like. Um, but it, it's something that I still enjoy. It's just it's it's like a popcorn flick. It's one of those movies that I can throw it on at any time, any part that it's on, and just leave it on and remember the quotes. And, you know, it, it's, it's a time killer. But I wouldn't call it one of my, you know, top ten all-time favorites. Don't get me wrong there. Uh, it's also funny looking back and seeing Tim Robbins from what he became back in a role like that. Um, just, you know, kind of the nostalgia of that too. you know, seeing where people come from when they're in these movies and right. Just doing the work. Time. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if you remember a movie that came out called fraternity vacation in 1985. I cannot uh, say that those, I do. It, one of those cheesy, you know, 
Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's knockoff type of movies, but Tim Robbins actually this ties into 1986 because Tim Robbins and Willie Tanner from Alf were both in that movie. Oh wow! Uh, were they fraternity yeah. brothers? Because this might make it the greatest movie ever. <laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> it was about the. Um, remember the movie Nine Seven Six Evil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the, the nerdy kid from that was the nerdy kid in this, and Willie Tanner was his dad, and. Tim Robbins and this other actor who never became anything of any significance were his frat brothers who Willie Tanner paid to take the nerdy son onto spring break to get him laid and get him out in the world and oh, all that stuff. That movie. And it I was an all-star cast. It had uh, Matt McCoy, who was in uh, Hand That Rocks the Cradle and in the later Police Academies. It had uh, – you remember the movie Just One of the Guys, the evil boyfriend from Just sure, One of the Guys? Sure, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Marcy from Married with Children was in it. John Vernon was in it. Oh so my it's like gosh. Charles Lockett was a DJ. This has turned so, into a must watch. You have just pitched this movie to me. Seek, seek out Fraternity Vacation. It's one of those just, you know, cheesy 80s comedies that you'll get some good laughs from it. Um, highly recommended. It's from uh, 1986 minus a year. So it's from 1985. So it doesn't tie in too much to this other than this little discussion. But uh, well you know, it's not as. It's not as bad as Howard the Duck, I promise. <laughs> well worth the mention for sure. Yeah, all right. I, I just went from questioning all of your movie taste to being like, oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I, all I've right. seen it, and it's not terrible. We're going to do a turbo round now because I don't want to leave everybody hanging for the third picks, but we're just going to run through them and uh, then wrap up with no discussion. Uh, and I'm going to open this one up and just mention, honorable mention, that's what this round is, Polka Party by Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, my favorite Weird Al album, uh, didn't do very well, but I loved it. Came out in 1986. Beth, speed round. What's your third pick? In excess, listen like thieves. Actually, better than the later album, Kick. Oh, very interesting. Chris, what about you? Uh, something that I always wanted, never owned, but it's still one of the greatest playsets ever created: the Eternia playset for the Masters of the Universe line. Oh yes, yes. Well done, sir. And Sean, close us out. What was your <laughs> final pick? And and I know being brief is going to be tough. No, no, I'm going to be brief because if I open this too much, it's just going to get ridiculed. But uh, my last pick in keeping with musical themes from those of you that have picked albums is uh, my guilty, guilty pleasure, Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! We should have opened with that. <laughs> no, we'd still, I'd still be catching shit. All right, that is. Come on and say he doesn't like Star Wars. I would have never heard the end of if we had. Oh my gosh! All right, I like. I've seen Poison live twice. So we're closing. Oh my God. We're much to my chagrin. We're closing with Poison. Uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on, talking about the fantastic year that was 1986. We have certainly. Uh, some cool stuff has been brought up that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about, and that's what I love to do on the show. Uh, Beth, thank you for coming on. Where can we find you online? Well, you can always find me at needlessthingsite.com. And once again, I will be our uh, official media coverage for DragonCon this year. Yes, and you'll be participating in panels. Uh, so, to be determined, but yes, TBD. potentially. Little yeah. TBD on that one. Sean, what about you? Where can we find you online? 
Uh, you can find me online at deathpaw.com, D-E-T-H-P-A-W.com. Uh, second episode of the Death Podcast is actually in the works. We'll probably go out next Monday. Uh, it is an interview with uh, Jazz, Ricky, and Bambi from the Possum Kingdom Ramblers. You have heard Ricky and Bambi on this very podcast as Radio Cult, so this is one of their alter egos. will be episode two. It will be the finest interview with a folk band at a Taco Bell that you will hear this year. <laughs> And finally, uh, Chris, thank you for coming on once again. Where can we find you online? What are you up to? Uh, you can find me doing all the social media for figurestoycompany.com and wrestlingsuperstore.com. Uh, just use the company's names if you're searching us on Facebook or Instagram. If you're on Twitter, it's at figurestoyco or it's at reswres underscore superstore. My personal Twitter is at Zach Malibu. That's Zach with a K, Z-A-C-K-M-A-L. IBU, and if you are interested in any of the new Ring of Honor action figures, the upcoming Rising Stars of Wrestling, Legends Professional Wrestling, or any of the Mego-style DC Comics figures, stay tuned to our media because we've got pre-orders up for Ring of Honor now, some new Super Friends coming down the pike, as well as some new stuff from Batman 66 very soon. Dude, those Super Friends are so awesome. Did you see the Wendy and Marvin? Yes, I did. Yes, fantastic. Those might be some of my favorite figures we've ever done, just... (laughs) amazing amazing likenesses based on that cartoon well i love i'm actually collecting the batman 66 stuff because I, that to me that's it's the perfect batman 66 toy line but the super friend stuff the sculpts on the heads on those are, are fantastic man you guys are killing it thank you thank you very much all right thank you guys so much for coming on and uh we'll be talking to you all sooner than later as with most topics that we cover here or, or really that any podcast covers we could have gone on and on. There's so much to talk about that year. And if you want to uh, hop in the time machine, as it were, and check out 1986 through my eyes, go to needlessthingssite.com. The last several weeks, I have been putting up posts specifically about the pop culture of 1986. So check those out. See what you think. Let us know. Join the Needless Things podcast Facebook group where you can suggest things. You can say, hey, I'd like to come on the show and talk about this thing. Uh, and also you'll get updates on all the newest toys, movies, music, etc., etc., etc. I want to thank you guys for listening. And I want to thank you guys. Uh, just spread the word. Those of you that share this thing around the Internet know that I do appreciate it. That is the most powerful way that you can help out the Needless Things podcast is by spreading the word, garnering new listeners, garnering. That's a word I just threw out there I wanted to use, and I think I did it correctly. Uh, I, I want to grow the show. It's not about me. It's about wanting to bring more people on, get more voices, get more opinions. I mean, if you want to write something for the site, let me know. NeedlessThingsSite.com. Uh, we've got several writers, but we could always use more voices, uh, more points of view. Nothing excites me more than in some way being able to sponsor or publish or produce a point of view other than my own. I, I really enjoy that. Even if I don't agree with them, uh, I, I like enabling people, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, anyway, that's all I got for this week. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. 
You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vix employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.